I did want to mention to you this week, you may not have heard this, uh, but Alice Kirk is moving to Miami. Uh, She's leaving by the end of the month. Her daughter, Darlene, who was living in Colorado, moved out there a couple of years ago, and she's been there for a couple of years and hasn't been able to get the kind of job she was hoping she would be able to, and so she decided to move back. She's moving to Miami, and Alice is going to go live with Darlene. So if you want to see Alice, you probably ought to go see her sometime. Uh, And she is leaving at the end of the month, so so it'll be here pretty quickly. Uh, She will be coming back on occasion. Fred is really, she has a male friend that she's grown very close to over the last year. And uh, so this very unsettling for both of them that she's going to do this. Uh, So just pray for her. Pray for Fred because they've, they've become very dependent upon each other for spiritual strength and all kinds of things. So uh, anyway, that's Alice. Uh, we're going to be returning this morning to First Timothy chapter 5. Sometimes I wonder if people like the way that we do this going through books or they'd much rather me come up with some different thing every week and uh, and all of that and but I've always done it this way, and I've never heard many people complain about it. Uh, and I understand this. It's that there's a lot in the Bible to teach. And, uh, and sometimes when we do what we do, we get kind of stuck in a rut maybe for a while because very often books uh, of the Bible have themes that are repetitive and, and that sort of thing. Uh, but let me just tell you something. This is the way that the reformers, you know, the Great Reformation took place back in the 1500s. This is the method that they used for preaching. And it was later on that the, the, the concept of preaching that most of us have today was, was kind of sprung out of that. And that was the way that I actually presented my sermons for many years. And that was to come up with a sermon outline with three points. And you had to have three points. And, you know, this, that, and the other. And I always struggled with it because the Bible doesn't say that anywhere. But it had become the practice of just about every preacher that, I, every preacher that I'd sat under of doing it that way. But a few years ago, I started no sermon outline and just reading through and trying to explain and teach from what happens to be there. That's the way that Luther preached. That's the way that Calvin preached. Matter of fact, the commentaries of Calvin are simply his sermon notes. And he did almost the whole Bible. So I don't know if you like my preaching style or not, but I'm just trying to explain to you the reason, because as far as I'm concerned, this is a better way of presenting God's word to us. And let me tell you, it was always a challenge every week, no matter what the passage was, to try to come up with those three points. And sometimes you have to stretch things to get them. So as far as I'm concerned, this is the way to do it. This is a way it probably really ought to be done. So you may disagree with it, uh, but it's just my own conviction. It's the best way for us to address God's word without twisting it and bending it and doing all that kind of stuff, to take it at its word, as it says, as it's given to us. We are only going to be looking at a couple of verses this morning. 
Uh, I'm going to go back to, this is chapter 5 in 1 Timothy. I'm going to begin with verse 21 and read through 24. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, do nothing in a spirit of partiality. We talked about that last week, that, that, that teaching elders or no one else in, in, in the church should be given special favors and shown favoritism in particular circumstances, especially when disciplinary action is taken, which is kind of what Paul has been talking about in, in part up to this point. And then he says, do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thus share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. And we talked about what he's saying there is be careful about ordaining men. Make sure that you know them and uh, spiritually and in other ways before uh, you appoint them as elders in, in your church. And he also said this, no longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of of your stomach and your frequent ailments, and we talked about that as well. And then we get down to verses 24 and 25. The sins of some men are quite evident, going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Likewise, also, deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. We understand this. I, I, when, if you, you've been through pastor's class, everyone in this room probably has been through pastor's class, and you've heard me say this at times, and that is this, is if Lori's job in life, the only job she had to do, nothing else, was just to keep track of all my sin, that that would consume 100% of her time. I don't doubt that for a minute. Uh, we live, however, sometimes in a, there's certain circles of the church today that want to turn very often blind eyes even to very gross and negligent sin that takes place within the church. Uh, there are very, very few evangelical churches today that would enter into disciplinary action toward people uh, and that sort of thing. But we're in a denomination that's very serious about discipline, and that is that when people... And, but, but my whole point here, guys, is this. Is there certain sins? All sins are worthy of eternal damnation in hell. You understand that. The things that you and I consider to be little, teeny, tiny, itsy-bitsy sins are so important to God that that sin is worthy of eternal destruction. So we can never have the idea that there are really bad sins and then there's little sins. But at the same time, there are certain sins that are far more scandalous, of a scandalous nature. And that is, for instance, what if, and I know of a church in Dunellen, this happened in Dunellen a number of years ago, and that was the, 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 the pastor was having an affair with a woman for three or four years, and most of the congregation knew about it, and they were okay with it. And it was only after certain people found out that it became public knowledge and he was removed from his pulpit. The sad thing about it was he was preaching in another church up in the panhandle the next Sunday in the same denomination. I mean, we have to be serious about these kinds of things because the Bible's serious about them because because Jesus is serious about them, because the apostles, over and over again, we see that they're serious about this sort of thing. But we know this. 
that some sin has become apparent. In other words, they're revealed, they're uncovered. At the same time, we understand that some sins, and to be honest with you, I would imagine the vast majority of sins do not become apparent and are not evident. There's the private sins that all of us know something about. The secret ones. I would imagine that every one of us have done things in our life, maybe even as Christians, that we would be embarrassed of if other people knew about it. The point here Paul is making is that when they become evident, when they become obvious, you can't turn away from them. They have to be dealt with. So some sins do become apparent. Most of us never heard the word or, or the names David and Louise Turpin before. Some of you are probably going, well, I don't even know who they are now. But if you've been watching the news or you've been reading the newspaper, you've, heard, you, you've read a story about them this week, and it's the couple in, uh, in, in one of the counties in California this week that were arrested for torture and child abandonment, basically. Endangerment, rather. You know who I'm talking about? The way this all unfolded was one of their children escaped from their house. They found refuge, someone to help them. And the next thing you know, here's mom at home with, I think, 13 kids. Ranging from the ages of two all the way up to like 29. Some of them were actually young adults. And the mother could not understand why police were coming into her house. And what the police police found were some of them were chained with chains and padlocks to furniture in the house. And they were half starved to death and filthy. None of us would look upon that and not consider that to be a very heinous sin. Just think about it. All that was in secret. Even their their family, you know, family members, brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, and people, they had no clue this was going on. People that lived in the neighborhood, yeah, they say there was kind of strange people, and you didn't see them outside very much, the kids outside very much, and this, that, and the other, but... Now it's all public knowledge. People know about it. And they're suffering the condemnation of people, which most of us would say there's some justification for that. The thing about it is, is we as Christians should not be surprised or amazed when we find out things like this are happening in the world. Because just think about this. How many things like that, as terrible as that is, how many things very close to the same thing or maybe exactly the same thing or things just as heinous or just as outrageous are going on that will never be uncovered? One of the sad things about it is this couple... Claims 
the Bible. Did they talk their kids from the Bible? Now, as hard as it is for us to believe it, that is not, what they've done is not the unforgivable sin. But it's hard for you and I to imagine for one minute that these, these two people know, really know anything about Jesus Christ. Sad. But we should expect to find this stuff going on in the world because this world is full of sin and it's full of sinners. And they do, and sinners do really, really bad things at times. But I want us to remember this morning that this is not just something that takes place out in the world. That this sort of thing does take place. In the church of Jesus Christ. You probably hear me, tired of hearing me talk about it, but most of the discipline cases I've ever been involved in have been with pastors. Now, let me just give you some of the charges porn addiction, adultery, which is the most common one, non biblical divorce. Wife-beating, homosexual rape in the church. These were teaching elders in the PCA. Now, you're shocked, some of you. And these are the ones that have come to surface. I also know of two situations where people high up in in ministry, they were not ordained teaching elders, but they were very much upfront people as far as Christian ministry goes in their churches that were charged and convicted of child pornography within the last year or two. Scary, isn't it? But just remember that you're in a denomination where we take things like this seriously, that we actually do something about it. Because every single one of those men has been removed from their ordination, was taken away from them, all of them, those who were ordained. They're no longer serving as pastors in the PCA. But let me just tell you this. There's not an avenue open to them. If they ever decided they wanted to do it again, if they could go through the trials of ordination and, and, and convince people that they understood the, the grossness and the, and the badness of their sin and that they were truly repentant of it and, uh, and, and all of that, there's still a pathway for them possibly to do it. I've never known anyone to do it, but that pathway is still open there for them to pursue that. When it's leadership, it makes things even worse. I mean, how many times have you seen pastors that have been idolized by people 
over and over again, truly run off with a piano player. Things like that do happen. They really do. And part of it is this. I think very often people don't allow pastors to be people. They do. They put them up on the... They're the super Christians. You know, there's a special place, you know, in, in, in the book of life for pastors because, you know, they're noted to possibly make sacrifices that other people do and they speak on God's behalf, you know, in, in, uh, in this, that, and the other. And let me tell you, by doing that, we are doing them a gross disservice by telling people over and over again how great and wonderful they are. It's only a matter of time before they begin to believe it. And when you begin to to believe things like that, then you begin to believe that there should be favoritism when it comes to you. The point I'm very poorly trying to make is this, is that when sin, and we need to keep our eye open for it too. Not be so surprised when it happens. Be heartbroken when it happens. Because very often you're talking about sins that completely disrupt families, destroy families, marriages. That sort of thing. Well, sometimes in life, God allows heinous sin to be made known. Very often it's in the church. Why does he do it? Well, he does it for a lot of reasons. One is just it's simply sin, and he hates sin. But he has a purpose in it, and one of those is to maintain some level of purity in the church. Because when we see other people, when their sins become public like this and their sins are dealt with, they are an example to us. Let me tell you, whenever I've sat in these things and and I've spoken with other pastors, the thing that is going through your mind over and over and over again, this could be me. This could have been me. Now, some people, I know this. I've encountered a few along my way. They feel that they think they're too good, that they would ever do something like this. The people that are there are in a very dangerous place. Because ultimately, the reason that we have not done some things maybe that other people have done is only because God has held the reins in on us. And very often when you become very prideful and puffed up of where you're at, then God very often just releases the reins a little bit just to see, let you see what you really are capable of doing. I tell you, one of the most touching things I ever saw in my life was there was a, there was a pastor that was charges was brought for adultery and it turns out that he was having an adulterous affair for several years and it had adulterous affairs in two or three churches he was in before that and so it was a pattern and and all of that but when he showed up for his uh, his you know our our hearing and uh and all of that his wife was there with him 
She stood by his side the whole time. I hope none of y'all ever have to go even watch something like that. But let me tell you, it was powerful. It's just a message of how great and how wonderful and how abounding the forgiveness is Christ is that this wife was able to forgive her husband of this gross unfaithfulness that had gone on for years behind her back. That's how big our God is. That's how great our God is. And through him, he will enable us to endure all kinds of things in a manner that will glorify and honor him and at the same time be a lasting encouragement to us. God does these, allows these things to become public for reasons. And one of those is to vindicate his honor, certainly. To remind us of our own sin, as I've kind of alluded to already. But, but, but there's also another purpose, and that is to reclaim the sinner. We need to understand that this is exactly what the sinner needs. Not a bunch of people to turn a blind eye. We all need it. Paul uses the example in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And and, and, and it just blows your mind if you consider this. That there's a man there who has his father's wife. He's treating his mother or at least his mother-in-law as if she is his wife, the son. Paul says that's such gross sin. Even the world people don't do that. And it's taking place in the church and you've done Nothing about it. And Paul says basically there that he's already judged that man. And what he's done is he turned him over for, to Satan. And guess what for? With the hope that by doing that, he will run back to the cross of Jesus. It's what the guy needs. These things are not easy. They're never easy. And any people that enter in them to them very lightly at all have no business entering into them at all. So sometimes things are kept in the dark. And sometimes, I mean, there's all kinds of sins and they're very heinous sins very often that will never, ever come to light in this life. To remain in the dark. But we know this. We know that one of these days, all of it's going to be laid bare. That when Jesus comes back, there's not going to be any more secret sin on the part of anybody. Not unbelievers. Not even believers. I just want to remind us this morning that uh, the Scripture tells us 
that we as believers, this is what Paul writes in Romans 14.10. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the judgment seat of God. What you're going to find in the evangelical world today is most times people don't even talk about things like this. In most sermons you hear today is just Jesus loves me, 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 Jesus loves me. Which is biblical. But that's not all of it. Does that, does that make us think that one of these days we're going to stand before God and we're, and we're going to give an account to him for what we've done in our life? So all of those secret sins that we have will no longer be secret. They're going to become public knowledge. All of them. So even though some things remain hidden for now, they're not going to stay that way forever. Paul talks about deeds that are good or quite evident. Those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. In other words, I was just talking with Gloria and with Alex about this, and that is, is, is what comes out of us is a picture of what really is in us. I mean, in other words, if there's anger that comes out, it's because there's anger within. The Bible teaches us that Christ, we were elected through Christ for a purpose, and the purpose was to do the good works that God determined we would do at the very beginning of time. Good works. A lot of times people talk too much about good works to the point that very often church people think that they're saved by their good works. We know we're not. But at the same time, good works are part of the picture. Good works are the evidence of what really lies inside. So how, how, how often do you think about that? How often do I think about it? It's so very easy to become kind of self-centered, self-focused. You know, just thinks of, you know, and I'll be honest with you, usually when things happen, the first question goes through my mind is, how's that going to affect me? How's that going to impact me? What's that going to do to me? What's that going to do for me? Or what's that going to do against me? My younger sister, Dina, some of you know her, Lloyd and Lucy remember her. She actually played the piano for us back in the very beginning. Probably Amber might remember. Uh, She played the piano for us when we met in Lloyd and Lucy's house uh, a few Sundays. She was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's when she was 54, so it's been almost 10 years ago. 
And I'm ashamed to tell you that I don't go to see her very often. And I got all kinds of reasons. I don't have enough time. I'm really, really busy. I've always got somewhere else to be. You know, you go, and she doesn't know who you are, so are you really accomplishing anything by being there? Uh, you know, I'm, I've been working all day. I'm tired. I want to make a special trip. You know, this, that, and the other. We can, I can come up with all kinds of reasons and all kinds of excuses, but sadly, I don't go to see her very often. I got a phone call from my mother last week, and Dina was in Monroe with uh, septicemia. Very, very sick, which is a blood infection. Uh, and she's still there, and she's been in there for f- five or six days at this point. But anyway, on Thursday after class, and more out of guilt than anything else. And let me tell you, guilt is a very, it's a very effective motivator, but it's a very bad motivator. I went to see my sister. And when I got there, she was in bed. There was no one else in the room. She was kind of sloughed over, slumped over, reminded me of my father in his latter days, uh, with her head kind of just laying on her chest. I thought she was asleep at first, and, uh, but she wasn't. And so I started talking with her, and I asked her, I said, do you know who I am? She said, yeah, you're my brother, which was encouraging. Then she said, Dwayne, which is my brother's name, <laughs> which doesn't surprise me. Let me tell you, I'm, you, know, that's, you know, that's a little thing to me. That, that's not that that bothers me or anything like that, but it's just a measure of where her mind is now. Usually when you see her, when she sees your face, she lights up like a light bulb. But anyway, it was one of those days when it was cold and I had come from the college after class and had been outside, walked up to the building. My hands were still really cold. And I touched her hands, and she went, Woo! Because <laughs> I was so cold still. But then she grabbed a hold of it. It was like she was never going to let go. My challenge this morning for all of us is when was the last time you did something really nice for somebody? Just to be nice. To show Christ's love. She did let it go, by the way. It was as if to say, I needed that, but I know you can't stay. Make somebody's day this week.
that the good that's in you because of Christ become real for you 